You're listening to the Onside Podcast, the podcast for innovation-driven entrepreneurship here in Atlantic Canada. I'm your host, Alex McCann, and this is Season 2, Episode 17. And in this episode, we're taking a look at the journey to create a climate-adaptive technology company here in Nova Scotia. Our guest today is Matt Mizzy, founder and CEO of Drinkable, the world's first accurate, affordable, and easy-to-use handheld water testing device. Matt has a degree in environmental science from Acadia University, he's a venture capital enthusiast, and he is hyper-passionate about ethics, truth, and environment. Matt, thanks so much for joining us here on the Onside Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Excited. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, we always start off with uh, giving our guests an opportunity to share a little bit about themselves. And I thought we could start off by getting to know you a little bit more. And so I'd love for you to tell our listeners, who is Matt? (laughs) I honestly have no idea where to start on that one. But um, I think, um, you know, origins are are important, but uh, maybe we'll get there eventually. I'm an environmental scientist by education. And I stumbled into the world of venture capital, which is the uh, the fine art of begging strangers <laughs> for, for lots of money to fix what you want to fix and produce a company that can uh, achieve that. And I think that was the light bulb moment for me was was learning that there is an opportunity to, to get that money and to fix the problems in the world that you want to fix. And I'd seen my father done it before. Mm-hmm. So I knew it was possible. And I think that's a big part of, of the whole journey is knowing that it's possible when you first start off. And yeah, I think the origin part of that is my mom is a fine art specialist. Hmm. So she's a very sensitive person, a very liberal person, a very caring person. And my dad is a bull. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's an, an incredible, they're both incredibly intelligent. And, uh, you know, he, he leans more to the right generally. And having two parents that were cooperative with their differences mm-hmm. and both gave each other the opportunity to teach me what they thought was valuable, mm-hmm. I think gave me a lot of the skill sets to understand very different perspectives and work with lots of different types of people. And and again, my dad showed me that it's possible. So mm. I think that's uh, at the root of a lot of that. Okay. So you have kind of a, a yin and yang uh, kind of thing happening in your family that's uh, pulling you in, pulling you in, in different directions. Absolutely. And, and um, so your your company, Drinkable, is uh, focused on, on water technology. Um, but how did you, how, was there somebody who inspired you to become an entrepreneur? Like what... Or, or a person or something like what 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 drove you to become an entrepreneur because you have this science kind of background not not all scientists decide to uh, well not all scientists decide to also be interested in venture capital and then <laughs> even if you are not all scientists decide to uh, to start a company was there somebody or, or an event that uh, made you interested in an entrepreneurship well my my father uh, an electrical engineer by trade uh, started his own company uh, shortly before I was born mm-hmm. and it was electronics testing and um you know at the beginning i think one of their first contracts was testing airbags for ford Ah, and um over time and dealing with many different uh, companies that grew to start testing 70 percent of the world's airbags so it became a huge company he became the ceo of that company um and seeing him and it was it was a painful experience like Mm -hmm. every day at the dinner table he was talking through you know, verbally trying to digest how to turn himself from the electrical engineer to a leader of people, mm. how to set the culture um, and the tone of the company, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And that's an immense learning opportunity for mm-hmm. for someone like myself. And um, yeah, he showed me that, he, and he's a he's a, the son of, of, 
of two people who at the time could barely speak English. Mm-hmm. He didn't do well in school, but uh, was a savant, so to speak, very good at electronics and, mm-hmm. and math and like crazy good. <laughs> and um, yeah, he, he really did, did set the example that you can start with almost nothing, yeah. teach yourself and, and, and turn yourself into um, somebody that people look up to. So, so you you said um, so. So, where are your parents from? Then you said uh, your dad grew up in a in a home where his parents did not uh, did, did not speak English. So, where where were they from? And you know, how did that uh, how, how, that must have been quite a journey to to have that kind of background and then you know try to make make play, a place for yourself here in Canada. Yeah, I think my dad's both. I think my dad's genetically lucky in that <laughs> he can he can digest stress in a. Um, uh, a way that would make most people feel jealous. Okay. <laughs> um, but his parents came from Malta, and that's, I think, historically relevant given the Ukraine situation because until very recently, Malta was the most bombed place in the world for an extended period of time. So I think there was like 200 days of straight bombing. Wow. There was nothing left of a very vibrant and beautiful culture. And um, my grandfather fought in that war and lost a lot of people mm-hmm. that he was very close with. And uh, him and his wife, uh, who he had one child with at the time, uh, maybe two, I believe it was just just my aunt that was, was born already. And they took uh, two separate boats mm-hmm. um, over to, they thought they were landing in New York. Uh-huh. They landed in Hamilton, Ontario, <laughs> very different place. <laughs> and, uh, and he became a plumber and, you know, did, did the best he could for his kids. Mm-hmm. And my dad um, just engineering wasn't attractive at the time mm-hmm. but it was what he was crazy about he, he couldn't stop building things and making things and he, he made his own calculator in high school when wow. like they didn't really exist and uh-huh. he made his own personal computer in university and um he just he was just that sort of person uh-huh. and just he, 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 he just couldn't be stopped uh-huh. when, when he put his mind to something so um i don't really know what who his uh hero was so to speak mm-hmm. who set the example for him but uh, it didn't appear that that was overly necessary, just that there, both him and his father could mm-hmm. metabolize stress mm-hmm. immensely well mm-hmm. and put it to good use. Mm-hmm. So he, he had this, your uh, grandparents and then your parents had this very stressful, dynamic kind of existence moving here and trying to start anew. And uh, your father had, uh, you called him a savant, a keen engineering kind of brain or problem solver, really, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to solve all kinds of things. And he creates a company, grows really, really successfully and big and is doing all kinds of things. And you get to sit around the table watching him trying to move from being kind of the technical problem solver to uh, that kind of uh, business leader trying to lead a team and, and, and those kinds of things. It sounds like that was really important for you as you kind of digested some of that. Well, absolutely, from, from all sorts of different perspectives. Uh, the other perspective that I didn't mention is that uh, because he was doing electronics testing for all sorts of companies that became um, vibrant themselves or were already vibrant, I got to see really ugly prototypes. Oh terrible prototypes <laughs> and then they became xbox 360s and then then they became uh-huh. teslas and then they became segways and then they became tasers mm-hmm. so I, I got to see those things in their their ugliest form with lawyers who were proud of those ugly forms <laughs> and uh, they knew that at the end of the tunnel there there was light so they kept they kept working at it and uh-huh. keep, kept refining and so i'm not embarrassed when our prototypes are ugly uh-huh. and i'm really proud of our team when they find problems uh-huh. and that's definitely set by the kind of the examples that you know i was running around with like 60 very good engineers mm-hmm. 
I, you know, I teach some of them how to unicycle sometimes. Like they like kind of half babysat <laughs> me. You know, there there would be military projects that were um, uh, blacked out in the corner um, that I never heard about, probably for good reason. <laughs> and uh, be, I think being exposed to that is it really, really does um, make it possible mm-hmm. from a mindset perspective. Mm. Well, so you, um, that's, uh, well, I think that's really important because uh, in a early stage company, startup company, there's a lot of uh, trying and, and failing a lot before, you know, you become su- successful or, or make a, the, the product. I mean, um, you know, I just think about the iPhone, you know, there's like a new one every year. Mm. And I, uh, I don't know if I had the original iPhone, but I had, I had one of the early ones, you know, and there's that constant, um, constant improvement or tr- constantly trying to make something uh, then better, better than it was. But uh, you got to see things before even the, the, the released version. So yeah, probably with the wires and all those things coming out. I probably shouldn't mention it, but I, <laughs> I was, I was playing on a prototype Xbox 360 before people knew that they were coming out. So uh. it was, uh, I got some some privilege to go along with it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. It felt pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. I bet. I I have a teenager. I've got a couple teenagers kicking around and uh they're now com- permanently addicted to Xbox 360 amongst other things. So, hmm. I, I guess I should thank you or not thank you for that or your father for <laughs> getting that out the door in the world. I guess that's it's it's good. It's all good. It's all good. So, you have a scientific uh background or you you got into science. Were you always interested in science? For, like did your your father and your mother did they kind of inspire you to be interested in science or what uh, what got you interested in science? I think disagreements at the dinner table were common and encouraged. Mm. And um, I think that pushed me to Google things as a teenager. And that was like the heyday of Google. You could Google mm-hmm. something, you get a real answer. You get mm-hmm. the actual answer, not like an ad fed answer. <laughs> Fair um, enough. <laughs> so it was amazing because um, if I wanted to pursue uh, something from a scientific perspective, like I enjoyed reading abstract as a like 15 year old, a 16 year old mm-hmm. scientific abstracts for papers. And I think this is a, a weird angle to take on it, but my mom got very sick when I was about uh, 10 or 11, mm. and she was more or less in the hospital for a number of years after that. Mm-hmm. And my dad was very busy. So I, I had, like I think, golden years up to that point, like the perfect childhood. Everything was taken care of. My grandparents were a few blocks away. I could walk over if I wasn't getting along mm-hmm. with my parents. Like, truly magical. But um, I think going into puberty, all of a sudden with my parents not really being present, like they were now taking care of themselves in their own way. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of self-teaching that was required from a psychology perspective, from a human sexual perspective, mm-hmm. all of those things. I learned a lot of that through the golden age of Google. <laughs> and like, I know that sounds kind of unusual uh-huh. and, uh, you know, maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea, but, um, you know, it was, I actually look back on those, year, those years fondly. And I think that trend continued. I wasn't hell bent on science. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't want to take something that wasn't functional, mm-hmm. uh, like functional in the workplace, per se. I wanted a, an education that I could get. And, you know, environmental scientists are, they have a hands-on job now. Mm-hmm. They can go out into the field and, and do work. And that was attractive to me. So there was always a, a search for truth and, and research. And I think that fit the scientific mold pretty well. Mm, interesting. And um, this idea of... Uh, I like that, you know, like trying to think of, and I know a lot of young people are trying to figure out, you know, what does the future hold? Like, mm-hmm. where should I go? What what should I spend my time on? A lot of people are concerned about uh, climate emergency. Uh, you know, do they do they want to be an activist? Do they want to be a scientist? You know, all, all of these um, kinds of things. And did your interest, uh, 
you know, I was kind of looking at some of the things that you've done in your your life and you've traveled quite a bit and seen the world and gone to a lot of different places. Did that get you interested and in, in with your kind of uh, your extensive Googling on uh, many subjects, pre fake news and, uh, you know, c- conversations about truth is kind of that uh, curiosity and your science background. Is that what kind of got you interested in sustainability or what kind of piqued your interest around that? I think I was, um, because of the research I was digesting, mm-hmm. I was well aware of issues long before they were public enough for me to have uh, an outlet with my peers or my parents. Mm-hmm. They thought I was nuts. Like before <laughs> the climate thing really caught on, I was, you know, I'm like having trouble getting out of bed in the morning. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't think people realize how many people are going to die and suffer through this. And I try to bring it up with people that I looked up to and they're like, oh my God, like mm-hmm. a, another another kid that's... Um, on, that's fallen on the liberal side mm-hmm. of the fence or something. Uh, you, I think you told me that you uh, had a Waldorf education. They were probably like, oh, here's another Waldorf hippie. <laughs> to try to yeah, of... <laughs> exactly. So you're, you're familiar with Waldorf then? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it is an interesting, it's an interesting education for sure. Mm-hmm. And my mom was actually a part of the school um, ah. on the admin side, and that had its own complications and benefits. But <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it sounds like the conversations around the dinner table, your traveling experience, your extensive Googling and, you know, <laughs> trying to understand the world around you really had a uh, impact in terms of kind of your outlook and where you wanted to go. And you've created this company, Drinkable, which is focused on water testing and water technology. And uh, your company has done so great over the last uh, couple of years. I, when, when, was your, when was your company founded? Um, that would be about early. You're still early stage company, but I think three years, three years. Okay. It's not a hard start. So okay. it's kind of like when, <laughs> when is the start? Cause you know, it was a hobbyist focus on water, which turned into this, like I, I was just reading abstracts mm-hmm. and I combined the two abstracts and I said, there's a solution here for very affordable water treatment mm-hmm. and then reached out to a researcher on the West coast and we were bouncing ideas off each other and like, this is incredible. We can like, we can make this a really cheap treatment solution for remote communities in Canada that might fit the indigenous Mm -hmm. um, situation pretty well, their water crisis, and uh, very quickly realized that the testing was the greatest bottleneck to reducing the cost. Mm. So not having the information of what the water is, you don't really know what you can do to it. You need to be testing it frequently. You need to send people who have extensive education, often receiving remote pay or danger pay, Mm -hmm. and it adds up. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, there are actual rules or laws or policies that prevent certain companies from, if they've ever interacted with water that's on First Nations land, they now have to carry it off the land. It's not even allowed to touch the soil. Okay. And the cost of that <laughs> in some of those remote communities makes that enormous. That's an enormous wow. cost. So if you can test it, ensure that it's safe to put back on the soil, even in, in that regard, that's a huge step forward. Mm-hmm. So what started off as, it would be really cool if we could there's about 300 communities in Canada who could benefit from this uh, extensively. It'd be really cool if we could get it to them. So then we started researching what technology was required to pull that off. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't been developed yet. Mm-hmm. So we put a rough idea together of what it would cost to develop that technology. Because mm-hmm. it's like right there. We're almost there. Mm-hmm. So if we can push it over the line, then we can have that solution at our fingertips. And uh, in the process of determining what that dollar figure was... How are we going to get the dollar figure? I started to learn that this is like, this is the, the good end of the spectrum in Canada, mm-hmm. that a lack of 
So the, the, the one statistic I always revisit is easily preventable illness leads to half of all global hospitalizations. It's the easily preventable part that is scientifically defined. Mm -hmm. So as, if that person knew that there was something wrong with the water and knew what it was, mm -hmm. half of medical complications could be avoided. Yeah. So that became like a very easy metric to look at as a proxy for the global situation. Mm -hmm. And it became much more than just the 300 communities I was originally focused on. And now we're, we're very much trying to develop a, a device that anybody can use with mm -hmm. the press of a button. In a few minutes, you'll know what's in there. Mm -hmm. You'll know what it'll do, it'll do to your health and you'll know what you can do to prevent those health implications. Yeah. Well, it's definitely, um, you know, even if you're uh, a person who's camping you know, is a very straightforward example and you're you pass by a stream mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, I wonder if I could just, you know, fill up my uh, my water canteen and keep moving here. And uh, there's always a moment where you're like, can I do that? Can I not do that? Water looks clean. Is it? Or is it full of pathogens that are going to like, <laughs> I'm going to be keeled over in a few minutes. So the ability to test and make sure that water is clean and safe is really critical for many communities. As you were thinking about this idea, you you did some research, you know, identified a really, really keen problem. And you thought, OK, this is something that needs to be addressed um, and decided to put a company together, you know, and now I think I just mentioned that uh, you guys have won the Bioinnovation Challenge recently. I think that was last week. You guys won $55,000 for that. So congratulations on uh, on your win there. Thank you. But you don't go from that kind of just idea or research paper or, you know, things or a few conversations to creating a company and then, you know, winning challenges. What, what were some of the steps that you took to kind of create your, your company and, and move along that path? Like, I know you've been involved with a, a few accelerators. Um, I know you've done some things like that. Um, can you tell us, some of our listeners, you know, some of the things that you did to kind of arrive at this point in time? I know it's still kind of early and uh, three years you know, is not that long of a time, but you guys are making some excellent strides. Yeah, I, um, to start off, I think it's important to say also for entrepreneurs who are maybe only a year in or a year and a half in that like the first year and a half is by far the most painful for mm. me anyways. Mm. It's like everybody's telling you it's not possible. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be wanted even if it was possible. You don't have a leader of your team yet. So you're all not really fighting, but every, nothing moves fast. It's a round table every single mm. decision. So like all of these things, like you've all got ideas. You don't necessarily know what those teammates are good or bad at. If you're in a situation like me where I actually met my co-founders at a hackathon. Mm. So I met them in the lobby of the Aqua Hacking Challenge, the Atlantic Aqua Hacking Challenge. And because I had already been focused on the, the community developments in terms of water treatment, when they proposed water testing for wells in Nova Scotia, I'm like, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. And then looked into the market size for wells and saw that it was it was perfect for us. But that took a long time to convince people. And mm -hmm. it took a long time to convince myself. Like mm. that, those are really, you know, COVID was just started to rear up when we mm. started the company. I think I, I was just about to turn 30. Mm -hmm. I'm like, am I supposed to be doing this right now? Like, <laughs> or am I, sh should I be doing something more serious, so to speak, <laughs> uh -huh. in quotation marks? And I'm, I'm glad I stuck through it, but those questions are painful questions mm. when, when you don't have much certainty. But uh, I think given my background, a little bit of biology, a little bit of chemistry, a little bit of geology, and some policy, human health understandings, and and then the venture capital side. It just, I didn't. I felt like I didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Like I needed to stick at this, and 
and it just got better as we believe as as mm -hmm. more people believe and more people support and, and the energy goes up mm -hmm. then it becomes self-sustaining then mm -hmm. it's easy to chase the dream as long as there's enough money to keep everybody happy mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and uh those are the good years like these are the good years right now for us i can tell this is a small team mm -hmm. we love what we're doing mm -hmm. and we see we see that that path to success. So, okay. Yeah. And how has being kind of in the the Nova Scotia innovation ecosystem impacted you? Because you know we have a kind of new and growing uh, ecosystem there. And and I know you're from Ontario originally. I don't know if you did any um, kind of entrepreneurial stuff uh, out there. But how do you feel that the Nova Scotia ecosystem has kind of supported you, or what's it like here? Well, I think for a little bit of context, I. Uh, through Acadia, I was part of Acadia's venture capital investment team mm -hmm. for their the venture capital investment competition. Uh, it was classified as the Canadian Nationals, but there was like six universities. So <laughs> we did win that. And I didn't even know what venture capital was before that. And then we, we were the only uh, Canadian team that got to go to the U.S. Nationals. And I learned a lot through that process because those, those were real companies and real VCs. And the lessons I learned through the venture capital investment competition is that um, Canada as a whole, and especially Atlantic Canada, does have some challenges. It does have some pitfalls and some things that need to be accounted for. But on the flip side is this small community that is still small enough that everybody knows each other. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to help. Everybody's willing to help. And federal programs don't seem to be biased on where you are. So we've had amazing federal help. I don't think a lot of people realize that you can get like hundreds of thousands of dollars from the government in different ways if you want to fix something mm -hmm. with the world. And that just that belief or that hope can be really powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, you just have to ask and figure out how to ask. But um, yeah, it's been amazing to be part of, a, a frankly, a small ecosystem that's, that's really driven uh, to see change. But it has been challenging with that size on the money side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we know that going past the seed stage investment, going past the $2 million investment is going to require either some voodoo magic okay. <laughs> <laughs> or, or getting money from outside the ecosystem. Uh -huh. So that's where the challenges come in, where if you want to take that risk of becoming a big company, which makes the risk worthwhile to other investors, you do have to plan to take money from outside the ecosystem at some point mm -hmm. for now. Yeah. 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 And I think that that uh, landscape is getting better. Like the last few years has been a active effort to bring in more angels, to bring in more VC, to create opportunities for other kinds of invest investment vehicles in the, in the region. But you're right. It has been a struggle and uh, to take your company bigger or, you know, to scale the company so that it's, uh, you know, a globally relevant company that probably will require some some of that, you know, broader thinking and access to broader investors. Hopefully we can have some uh, ones from here in Atlantic Canada, but uh, getting you ready for that uh, that journey. And as you kind of think about that, and I, I was wondering if you might, um, we were talking about a little bit about the ups and downs and trying to figure out what it's like to, you know, bring a team together, figure out each other's strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, being an entrepreneur is, is not easy. Um, a lot of stress. It was you mentioned kind of at the beginning of your uh, comments, and uh, you know you saw it with your father, and um, you know running running a business and trying to to manage people, and it takes a lot of uh, resilience. I feel like in the last couple of years, everyone loves that that word. How how are we going to make our companies resilient? Our economy, our people, our society. Uh, how are we going to recover? But I wonder if you might share with our listeners any thoughts that you might have around 
resilience and, and uh, you know, as you think about rebounding from things that didn't work out, products, you know, things like that. How does that affect you? And, you know, how do you think about it for going forward? Well, there is one moment in time that I think is a, is a great example. And leading up to that moment, I'd had like a lot of success in business competitions. A lot, a big part of that was luck, but that's what I got used to regardless of the reasons behind it. <laughs> and uh, we went into the uh, Apex International Business Competition. At the time, our company name was What the Well. Mm. It's just a fun one because okay. <laughs> <laughs> we were so focused on well water. Okay. And uh, we came like fourth or fifth or something. It was like shattering to me. Mm. You know, I think resilience has two sides. We all wanted to quit. We all admitted that to each other later mm. that like the three of us were like, this isn't fun. We put so much work into mm. this and it's just like we're invisible. And uh what we didn't realize is that one of the judges later invested in us as oh. our first investor. And it wasn't long after that, but we almost walked away. I think it would have been like two days after that, probably mm. that we all kind of hit the line where we said, this is too much. But the resiliency side for me is I think the other two teammates took their foot off the gas a little bit. And after two days of wallowing, I kind of said like, for lack of a better phrase, like, you know, like F this, I'm mm-hmm. going to like, I know this is going to work. I'm going to prove everybody wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think there's all sorts of ways to motivate yourself. But every time there's been a low point, I am like more energized coming out of the low point than I was before the low point. So mm-hmm. those two days are always extremely savage for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm so hard on myself. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, you know, I've recently spoken to a couple other founders about that in other competitions where like when things don't go to plan, even at second place, mm-hmm. it really hurts mm-hmm. when in your mind, you've been doing all of the work with the fantasy of that that image of you being first in mind and and taking your company just a little bit further so resiliency can have its dark moments too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't think it's all it's all good but i think it may be healthy for most people to give up in that situation because the year after that was really hard and i don't think i think about half of my friends would come out of that for the worst so Mm -hmm. i think there's the uh, appropriate style and, and amount of resilience for each situation, for each person. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. It's uh, I, I can imagine that's uh, pretty devastating uh, not getting, you know, if you were the fourth or fifth place. I'd imagine if you were like the 10th or the 20th, <laughs> 20th place. But uh yeah, you do have those moments where you're pushing everything, you know, your all of your intelligence, all of your drive, all of your work. And sometimes it doesn't play out the way you want. Um, there's usually, you know, usually one or two that make it through. But what I'm kind of hearing is um, you dusted your shoulders off and said, you know, is this what I want to do? And uh, kind of doubled down on it. And um, that's really hard to do. So I commend you. And, uh, you know, I, hopefully you'll uh, keep finding those uh, wells of resilience. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I had to get that in there. I had to get that in there. Well, it, it worked. It worked beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to, we're, we're close to our time. I have one last little question that we always like to ask our guests uh, on the podcast here, and that is around entrepreneurship, nurture or nature. What do you think? I would be, I think, doing a disservice to a lot of people if I were to claim that this was nature, that I was just like born to do this. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's frankly ludicrous. Mm-hmm. And um, there is, there's an example that I frequent, which is a really weird example. And 
and memory to go back to, but I went through university with a group of friends from Truro, Nova Scotia, and they didn't have the same upbringing as I did. And whenever we'd think about changing something, they didn't think it was possible. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about like put a washer and dryer and, and find a new outlet and like do some electrical mm-hmm. and find somewhere to drain the water. That was an impossible task that mm-hmm. would be laughed at. And I'm just like, my dad changes something in the house every day. <laughs> and uh, after I kind of digested that for a bit, I realized that there's a lot of people in this world and they didn't grow up in a disprivileged situation. They're quite lucky in the grand scheme of things. And still they had seen so many things not work because of the environments that they, they were in, that that was their mindset. So there's a huge aspect of nurture that, mm-hmm. that comes in for me because I saw that it, it's possible through my dad. I saw that it was possible with very low amounts of resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if you don't have someone that looks like you and sounds like you and, and acts like you accomplishing something, then I think the confidence might not be there. And confidence is really important when you're raising money to, to get something done. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I would have to lean towards nurture. Mm, Okay. Okay. I love that. Well, that is fantastic. I really appreciate your insights and uh, your thoughts today. I really, really enjoyed uh, our conversation. If folks want to learn more about you and uh, about Drinkable, how can they learn more? Where can they find more information? Well, you can go to our website, which is uh, drinkable.tech, so T-E-C-H. Um, and yeah, you can email us there if you have further questions. We are we do have pre-orders available for our, our V1, uh, hopefully coming out by the end of the summer. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, please email us if you have questions. Love, I'd love to hear from you. Okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I uh, just want to thank all of our listeners to uh, the Onside Podcast. Please follow us, uh, subscribe to the podcast, and you can... Uh, look at our Inclusive Innovation Monitor, which is available on our website, which is www.onsidenow.ca. And as we come to a close, I'd really like to thank Communities, Culture, and Heritage for your support. We're so grateful for your support in helping us make this podcast. And uh, stay tuned for our next episodes. It'll be out soon. Thanks. Thanks so much, Alex. This has been a Podstarter production. production.